0: Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries.
1: And it is in response to this man calling Jesus good teacher that Luke tells us that Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I think that helps us in understanding at least what was said here. Now, why did Jesus make such a big fuss about the way this man addressed him and calling him good? Because the way this ruler addressed Christ revealed a major obstacle to his salvation which was that he had a deficient and flawed view of God.
2: Everything about God is holy. Theologians sometimes say that he is other. Even though he made Adam in his own image, God was still other than his creation. No one is as exalted, as powerful, or as righteous. He is separate from us and superior to us in every aspect. And the fall placed a moral chasm between us that keeps us from approaching Him without first asking for and accepting His mercy. The rich young ruler in Matthew 19 didn't get that, as we'll see today on Verse by Verse. Welcome. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're in the middle part of Pastor Steve's first message in a series from the Gospel of Matthew about the love of money. The story of the so-called rich young ruler, as we'll hear about, is much like the story of a lot of people living today. Modern people face the same hindrances to salvation as that man faced 2,000 years ago. Here's Pastor Steve now to tell us more about them.
1: As we go through the story of the rich young ruler, we're going to discover, as I said, that there are three obstacles that hindered him from coming to Christ. So in principle, it's these same three obstacles that continue to keep people out of the kingdom 2,000 years later. So this is very, very pertinent and relevant for us. So the first, as we get into our text, the first obstacle to this man's salvation that we see was that he had a deficient view of God's character. He had a flawed view of God's character. Notice verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit or I may obtain eternal life? Now, As I told you, according to Mark's account of this story, just as Jesus was about to leave the area of Perea, modern-day Jordan, probably on his way to Jerusalem, a man, Mark tells us, came running up to him, and apparently this man was hurrying to reach Jesus before the Lord left his community because he wanted to ask Jesus an important question. And so Mark tells us that upon reaching Jesus... This man drops to his knees, which was, by the way, a position of great respect, reverence towards Christ, and while on his knees before the Lord, probably still breathing heavily from running, just trying to catch his breath, he asked Jesus this question, teacher, he says, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now, this wasn't a question that was unique to this man. He's not the first man to ever ask this question. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we read about another man who asked a similar question. And why? Because that was on the hearts and minds of Jewish people of that era. They wanted to know how to be in a right relationship with God. It was a religious community. They wanted to know how to be sure they were in his kingdom. They wanted to know how they could know that they were saved. And keep in mind, in Jewish thinking in that era, eternal life and entering God's kingdom were synonymous terms. They meant the same thing. We know this because in verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus equated this man's request for eternal life with entering the kingdom of heaven. And so this man has come running to Jesus because he was in search of finding out how to enter into salvation. And you know what? He had a lot of positive things going for him. He he really did. He was reverent, as indicated by the fact that he knelt before Christ. That was a great sign of respect. He was devoted in his religious service, since he was probably a synagogue official. He was outwardly moral and virtuous in his life, as we'll see as we go through this. By his own admission, he said that he kept the Ten Commandments. Yet, with all of these positive things in his life, he still knew that something was missing. Even though the rich young ruler had been so strict in his observance of his religion, he knew that he was still coming short in his quest for eternal life. He didn't have it. But note this, he mistakenly thought that there was something that he needed to do, some religious work, some commandment, some righteous deed. He felt if he could just find out from this great rabbi what it was, he could be saved. Now, please take note of this man's situation because there is an important principle revealed by the man's spiritual condition. Those who think, like this man did, that salvation can be attained by their own works of righteousness rather than by God's grace, understand this, they can never be satisfied. They can never be satisfied in thinking that they're going to heaven because as moral and as ethical as they might be, they are still left with the question, have I done enough? Have I done enough? This man we'll see later said, I have kept all of the 10 commandments. Now he hadn't, but he thought he did. And yet he still didn't think it was enough. In other words, if salvation is by works, then how many works do I have to do? How many good deeds do you have to do to earn heaven? What if you come up one deed short? And what is that deed? See, that's the tragedy and the bondage of religion. Religion pushes you to always strive to do one more thing to think of gaining God's favor. And you know what? It is exhausting because it's never enough There is no end in sight. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He wasn't talking about life being difficult. Now that's true, but he was talking about the heaviness that comes from the bondage of trying to keep all of God's laws and then traditions and legalism thrown in on top of that. Come to me all who are weary from this and I'll give you rest for your souls. And so this young rich ruler has done everything he knows to do, yet he still has this uneasy feeling in his heart that he lacks something. He longs for the joy, he longs for the peace in his heart that comes from knowing that all of his sins have been forgiven. And so what he wants to know from this rabbi, this Jesus, is tell me what good thing I still need to do to enter God's kingdom. Now I want to stop here for a moment in order to think about something important. Think about this. Think about how you would react if you found yourself in a similar situation as Jesus was in that day. What would you do, for example, if a man or a woman sitting next to you on an airplane saw you reading your Bible or some Christian book and asked you how to obtain eternal life? What would you do? What would you say? Or what would you say to someone at work who knows you're a Christian if they said, please explain to me, of course, after hours, don't, don't take away from your boss's time that he's paying you for, but after hours, explain to me how I can become a Christian. I've been observing you, and, and I want to know about your faith. Listen, what would we do? Most of us know exactly what we would do. We would go through the plan of salvation. Hopefully, you would not, say, make an appointment with our pastor. I hope you would not tell me, you would not say that. Hopefully, you would be able to step-by-step step witness to this person, explain the gospel, start, starting off by telling them what it means to be a sinner, and then about God's holiness and justice, demanding payment for sin and that Christ's death on the cross was the death of a substitute sin-bearer who paid for all the sins of those who would believe. And then by repentance and faith alone in Christ, one can be forgiven, and then in right standing with God. Something in that order or that essence you would tell a person. I I certainly hope so. That is the gospel. Most of us would, would know exactly what to say to an individual about how to obtain eternal life. But surprisingly, surprisingly, Jesus didn't do this. He didn't do this. Instead of answering this man's question by explaining the gospel to him, Jesus asked him a question. I've I've told you in the past that's a very Jewish thing to do, to ask a question in response to a question. And that's exactly what the Lord does. Notice in verse 17, he said to him, why are you asking me about what's good? There is only one who is good. Now, this is a rather odd-sounding question by the Lord. This man wants to know what good deed he has to do to be saved. And Jesus asks him why is asking him this question, since only God is good. Now, why would the Lord say such a thing to this man when he himself is God? After, after all, this is towards the end of his ministry, and the Lord has spent almost three years declaring his deity. Very clearly, I might add. He declared his deity by as many miracles. He declared his deity by such plain statements as I and the Father are one. And before Abraham was, I am. I am the great one. I am the self-sustaining one. I am El Shaddai. And he also declared his deity by receiving worship that is reserved only for God. And yet here, it sounds like the Lord is denying his deity by questioning why this rich young ruler would ask him about a deed good enough to get him into heaven since only God is good and therefore only God can answer such a question about good deeds. And so I ask, why did Jesus say such a thing? Well, in trying to understand why the Lord said this and how he was dealing with this young man, it is helpful for us to know that not only did the rich young ruler ask the Lord what good thing he had to do to obtain eternal life? But I think it's clearer for us when we understand that both Mark and Luke reveal that this man addressed Jesus not simply as teacher, or that means rabbi, but he also addressed him, they tell us, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but Mark and Luke do, that he called Jesus good teacher or good rabbi. Luke says that a certain ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And it is in response to this man calling Jesus good teacher that Luke tells us that Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I think that helps us in understanding at least what was said here. Now, that doesn't answer why Jesus responded the way he did, but understanding that he was called good rabbi, good teacher, helps us. Let me explain. Why did Jesus make such a big fuss about the way this man addressed him, calling him good? Because the way this ruler addressed Christ revealed a major obstacle to his salvation, which was that he had a deficient and flawed view You see, this young man saw Jesus only, watch this, as a good teacher, just what he called him, a noted rabbi. He did not see Jesus as God. He did not see Jesus even as the Messiah. There is no indication of that here. He just saw him as a good rabbi, someone who was so good, in fact, that he was so close to God that he could perform miracles. Now, someone this good, he felt, with this kind of status before God, could surely tell him what good deed he needed to do to obtain eternal life. He's such a noted rabbi, surely he knows. Tell me what's missing. Now, pay very close attention. It's going to become very clear as to why Jesus spoke to him this way. Based on this man referring to Christ as good, only because he thought of the Lord as a mere human rabbi indicates that his view of God as good is absolutely wrong. He doesn't see God as good. Jesus wants to know why he called him good since only God is good. In other words, Jesus wasn't denying that he, he was God, but based on the rich young ruler's faulty perception of him as only a man, the Lord was actually rebuking him rebuking him for attributing goodness to what he perceived to be a mere human rabbi when goodness is reserved only for God. Another way of putting this is to say that Jesus rebuked this man. He scolded him for putting what he perceived to be only a noted rabbi on the same level as God. I hope that's clear to you. I hope I can convey that. This man looked at Christ only as a man, yet he called him good. And Jesus, who's not denying that he's God, is saying, why do you call me good? Only God is good. You you are trifling in your attitude towards God. And in addition to this, the particular Greek word that is used here for good refers to intrinsic goodness, to inner moral goodness. Not goodness that is acquired, but intrinsic goodness. And in that sense, only God is truly good. Since only God is perfectly good in his inward character and makeup. Here's how British commentator Leon Morris explained why Jesus spoke this way to the young man. He wrote, and I quote, there are practically no examples in Jewish writings of a teacher being addressed as good. The man was engaging in thoughtless flattery and he had not considered the implications of the term he was using. Now, Jesus reminds him that there is only one who is really good and invites him to reflect on what he has just said. This does not mean that Jesus was denying that he was divine. He was not discussing that question. And if he had meant that he was not good, he would surely have said that he was a sinner. He did not. He simply asked the man to reflect on the implications of good, end of quote. Now, folks, this is a very, very significant point that Jesus is making in dealing with this young man, and he is dealing with him in an evangelistic way, in forcing him to consider his usage of the word good for what he perceives to be only a mere human rabbi. Jesus is chiding, rebuking the rich young ruler for having such a low and superficial view of God. That's what's going on here. That's a very important truth for all of us to consider, because one of the major obstacles, one of the major obstacles to salvation in Christ, is a deficient view of God's character, a view that fails to recognize that God is inwardly good and holy in the purest way. See, those who don't view God as perfectly pure and holy and righteous and good will never see their need for salvation. Never. Because it is only against the background of God's pure holiness that we can see our sin for what it really is, rebellion that is infinitely offensive to him who is infinitely holy. And it is in his infinite holiness, it is his infinite holiness that demands infinite justice for sinning against him. This is why the prophet Isaiah was appalled by his own sin. Let me read to you that famous passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah was struck down, pierced in his heart by his own sin after he saw the holiness of God. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So Isaiah was given a vision of the glory of God filling the temple. Seraphim, which is a category of angel, angels stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. Even angels dared not look into the pure holiness of God. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. And what was Isaiah's response? He didn't say, I'm going to go to the good rabbi and ask him about this. He said, woe is me, for I'm ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah said, when I saw the Lord lifted up and I saw his holiness, I realized how despicable I spoke. I realized the sinfulness of my own tongue. The prophet Habakkuk spoke of God's holiness in a way that is reserved only for God. Habakkuk 1, 12, and 13 say this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. In other words, he's saying God is so holy that he can never even look upon sin favorably, and he will never overlook a sin. Absolute purity of holiness. And Moses, in Exodus 34, 7, wrote of God and his holiness. He said, he will by no means clear the guilty. What a statement. God's holiness will not allow him to dismiss sin without it being punished. Speaking of God's absolute holiness, Bible teacher Walter Chantry wrote in his book, Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic, these words. He is so holy that if one ray of his glory were to meet your eye, you would be cast at his feet with a dreadful sense of uncleanness. But you know what? The rich young ruler didn't see God that way. That's the problem. Although heavenly involved in his religion, it probably never crossed his mind that God was so perfectly holy and righteous and good that his sin was offensive to God and had to be punished. And you know what? There are many people today just like that. It never dawns on them. They never consider that they have offended a holy God. They believe in God. They'll tell you they believe in God. They believe he exists. They may be very active in their church or in some religious organization, but it has never ever been considered by them that God's holiness and goodness compels him to punish their sins. They've never thought about that. Why? Because they have a defective view of God's character. They think that God is like us, so very human in character, but, you know, more supernatural. He can do things that we can't. But in terms of character, they see God the same way. They'll just overlook their sin. To err is, is human. He'll just move on. He doesn't really care. Do whatever you want. But that's an absolutely deficient view of God because he is not like us at all. He is untainted by our sin and absolutely pure in his holiness, absolutely pure in his goodness. And as Moses said, he will by no means clear the guilty. And those who fail to see God this way as the rich young ruler did will not be saved. You can't be saved because if you fail to see God as holy, you're gonna fail to see yourself as a sinner who is in need of a savior because you'll think that your sin has no eternal consequence. It just doesn't matter. We're all in the same boat, big deal. But the Bible teaches that our sins are a big deal and they do have eternal consequences. Why? Because God is holy. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment, the writer to the Hebrews said. It is a big deal. God's holiness demands justice. That justice will be meted out in him pouring out his wrath in judgment for all of eternity because he's infinite.
2: Remember the old Disney cartoon movie about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? Remember the song the dwarves sang as they marched off to the mines, I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go, or something like that. Americans have astonishing levels of debt, don't we? Car loans, credit cards, school loans, and so on. But there's one debt that every human being on the planet owes, and it started the moment we were born. It's a debt that we can never even come close to repaying, our sin debt is infinite. Hence the infinite time required to repay it, or we can let Jesus pay it all at once for us with an infinitely large payment. I like that payment plan, don't you? Thanks for listening today to Verse by Verse, a radio Bible class led by Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road. If you're looking for a church in Clearwater, Lakeside might be a great choice for you. It's a welcoming atmosphere, and as you've just heard, you'll hear solid Bible teaching. Call 727-441-1714 for more information. Or check out their website at lakesidechapel.com. That's 727-441-1714 or lakesidechapel.com. If you'd like to partner with us financially to pay for the broadcasting and production expenses, you can do so over the phone by calling Lakeside at that number I just gave, 727 727- or give online at our own website versebyverseradio.org click on the link to the giving page and follow the easy steps thank you for your generous gifts they are essential to this ministry while you're on the website we hope you'll take advantage of the large selection of previous broadcasts we keep on the message archive page they're all available at no cost and you can stream them or download and listen later there's also an option to set up a podcast if you'd like to do that. The web address, again, is versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson. I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 18:18, which says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We usually think of that as it applies to human-to-human relationships, and it obviously does apply there. But it also holds true in the human-to-God relationship,